Well, speaking of commissioning and reaching our world, we're beginning a, where this, this, this morning is a segue into a new series. We're technically still in Ephesians here. We're going to look at the same passage we did last week. But we are going to segue this morning into a new series that we will be looking at, a topical one on reaching our world. And it's actually going to take us through the end of the year, through the Christmas season, and we'll, we'll, we'll wedge how we'll do Christmas, uh, looking at various characters of Christmas um, into this call to missions and to reaching our world. So we are shifting our focus over the next eight weeks from this kind of verse-by-verse exposition of Ephesians. But we start this morning in Ephesians. And what we see in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul starts to pray. He says this, For this reason I, and then he stops. And he's going to pray for the people of Ephesus and the church there, but he stops. And like you and I, often in prayer, he gets distracted by another thought. And he realizes, I want to go back and explain and clarify some things that I talked about in chapter 2. And he wants us to, to, to clarify what he talked about there about the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile to God. And he wants to make sure they understand the mystery that has been revealed that Gentiles are welcome into God's family without having to become Jews. And that we are all one family, one new race, reconciled and restored to God. And then in verse 14, he picks up his prayer again. But in the meantime... He talks about not simply the mystery of the gospel, but then he also encourages them. He wants to encourage them by this aspect, by sharing with them his testimony. We're going to pick up in verse 1. We'll read through verse 13 this morning as we hear much of Paul's own story. Here's, here's where we are this morning, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive or read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to these holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promise of in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now we get more of Paul's uh, testimony. Verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So I ask you, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, one of the most cherished possessions that um, Meredith and I have in our house is a, a picture that sits in the uh, frame picture that sits in the hallway of our home. It is... Um, it is the home where we used to live in our, where our previous pastor in Brookhaven, Mississippi. It was to this home where we brought our first two babies. It had a beautiful front porch with four white rocking chairs and a white swing. 
And we, yes, beautiful. You can just taste the sweet tea, can't you? And so this painting is, is special to us, this picture, because th- that, that house and that front porch that it depicts is where we spent countless hours swinging our new babies and learning what it was to do life in ministry as a pastor in his family. Well, when we were leaving Brookhaven, where I had been the youth pastor there to come and take the position here, some of the families of the kids in the youth group gathered together, and as a going away gift, as a parting gift, they had a painting done of, for, of our home. But they didn't simply actually get a photo framed. That's not what they did. They actually, what they went out, is they went and found a well-known artist in Jackson, Mississippi, and they commissioned this artist to come and do an oil painting of our house. They commissioned an artist. We were talking this morning about commissioning. We talk about commissioning when you when you, commissioning is to be given a specific task. That artist was given a specific role, a specific purpose, a task that they assigned this artist to do. For we talk about this in other places as well, right? If you've been in the military, you were commissioned into military service if you were an officer. And what that means is they, they are given a rank and a particular job to do in the military. And Paul this morning is in a means of encouraging the believers in Ephesus he, has, he speaks to them and testifies to the commissioning that he has received, the specific task that God has given to him. Now, we see this story actually in multiple places in Paul's writings. In, chapter, in Acts chapter 9 is the original place where we see the actual count of Paul's commissioning. And if you know much about the story of Paul, you know that he hated Christians, that soon after Jesus had come to earth, he was a witness to Christ. He encounters the risen Christ, though. And even though he hated Christians and was actually persecuting them, Jesus, he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he repents of his sins. And Jesus becomes the master of his life. And this all happens in Acts chapter 9. And God then goes to a man named Ananias and he says, hey, there's a guy named Paul and he's blind. I've blinded him, but he's repented of his sins and he's now professed that I am Lord over his life and I want you to go pray over Paul and commission him. And I want you to lay hands on Paul and tell him that he is God's chosen instrument for taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's this act of laying hands on Paul and declaring over Paul his ministry, this was a commissioning by God. It was the assigning of a task to Paul. And this is what God does. This is God's pattern. We see it throughout scripture and throughout history. When God saves a man, he then sends them out. He saves and then sends. When he calls you to follow Jesus, Following Jesus means that you're called into Jesus' mission in this world. You're not simply called to wander aimlessly around following Jesus, doing nothing else. But as you follow Jesus, you do the things that Jesus does. God brings men to himself and then calls them back out again. This is what he does with the, with the apostles, the original 12 disciples. He says, I am good. He calls them by calling them, not simply by saying, I'm going to save you, but how does he call them? He said, I'm going to make you something. I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to have an evangelistic ministry. And so the pattern for all Christians that we see here, Paul has a specific task, a specific commissioning to be an apostle. And that means there's some uniqueness to his calling. 
And there's the uniqueness to whom he is called to go minister to. But in a general sense, all Christians have a commissioning by God. We have been given a commission. In fact, the most well-known and often preached passage in all the Bible is from Matthew chapter 28. And that passage is now known as the great what? Commission. The commission. So this is the pattern for all Christians. We are ministers commissioned by Christ Jesus to participate in his mission in the world. And this is what we're going to emphasize for the next eight weeks, reaching our world. And so you and I, you must consider yourself to be a commissioned as ministers. It's not just me. It's not just elders. It's not just deacons. It is all Christians. And this passage tells us, tells us what it means to be a commissioned minister within the story of Paul. So here's what it means. First thing, a commissioned minister is a servant of the Lord. A servant of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1, it says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. At least four times in the New Testament, Paul refers to himself with this moniker, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Well, do you know why Paul refers to himself that way? Because he's a prisoner. <laughs> Paul has frequent flyer miles for the various jails around the ancient East. He has hotel points for all sorts of jails in which he gets free beatings and specially tight shackles that he can, he can turn in his hotel credit card points for, prison credit card points. What is interesting about Paul, though, the way he refers to himself is not that he's a prisoner. That is well known. He's actually preaching this. He's actually giving us this letter. He's writing it from jail. But what's interesting is not that he says that he's a prisoner. It's who he says he's a prisoner of. Paul is in Rome under house arrest under the authority of Nero during this time. And yet he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Nero, or I'm a prisoner of the Romans, or I'm a prisoner of the Jews who are prosecuting and accusing me. No, he says, I am a prisoner of Christ. His imprisonment what, to Finn was merely a metaphor for his larger identity as a prisoner for Jesus Christ, that he saw himself as the Lord's prisoner. And this shows us to how Paul identified himself, that he was the slave of Christ, he says elsewhere, that where Christ calls me to go, I will go there. He is so single-mindedly sees things in life as a result of God's will and God's way and God's authoritative call in his life such that if he lands in prison, he goes, God must have put me here. This must be God's will for my life. And therefore, what Paul, we see here in this way Paul even identifies himself as being a prisoner of Christ, a man who has given up all vestiges of self-autonomy. This self-autonomy is the great idolatry of a country where we love our individual freedom. And it's a great thing. But self-autonomy is what we, we love in our world. I will do my way. He is not depending on his will and his way, but the will of Jesus for him. But those who love their self-autonomy, they make their life about their own grandeur or your will. It, instead, when we give up our autonomy to the Lord and we see ourselves as belonging to him as his servant, it becomes all about his glory and his will and God's name and God's will for our life. You can see this identity even shift from in, in, in Paul's name. What was Paul originally named? Saul. And who is Saul in the history of Israel? Why would an Israelite Jew name their child Saul? 
because he was the first king of Israel. And why was, why was Saul named the king of Israel? If you remember back to the story of why they, why they named Saul the first king of Israel, it was because he was tall and handsome and rich and strong. And this reflects who Saul was as a Pharisee. He was wealthy. He, was, he went to the best schools in all of, all of Israel. He was a Pharisee, a religious leader, a scholar. He was probably wealthy. He was self-focused. He was self-righteous. He was self-glorifying. And then Saul's name gets changed to Paul. Saul, the name Saul means tall. You know what Paul means? Small. Did you know this? Tall Saul, small Paul. That's who he became. And this is what God does to the life of those who submit to him. He flipped his life upside down. Everything was great for Paul, for Saul. He was wealthy and life was about him. And God said, I'm going to call you to be my own. He said, but that means you're going to lay your life down. You're going to have to become small. You're going to be hated. You're going to have to have no wealth. You're going to have to be rejected. You're going to have to be, spend time in jail. You're going to be beaten. You're going to become a prisoner. In other words, Paul views himself as, him, as someone who has died to himself and is now fully a servant, a slave to God. And so my question for you this morning, if you're going to be a commissioned minister of the Lord, have you learned to lay aside your self-autonomy? Have you surrendered your autonomy and the authority of your life to Jesus? Have you bowed to Jesus and said, not my will, but yours be done? This is the battle of life. We claim autonomy and independence from God. We've been doing this since the garden, and we have distorted this view of freedom in our culture. The framers of our constitutions established the fact that individual freedom is for our good, and that's awesome. In fact, their great achievement was individual freedom is more important than the authority of the state. But we have turned individuality into individualism. In other words, we turned it into our own personal religion. We have our individual freedom into a selfish self-aggrandizement where we seek, we seek our own rights without responsibilities, without bowing the knee to King Jesus. This is the belief of Adam and Eve. They said, God, we don't need you. Thank you for the nice advice about the tree and the fruit there, but we're convinced that we can make life work better without you. And so they said, see you later. This is the lie of the younger brother. Father, I want your gifts. I want your wealth, but I don't want your authority in my life. He wants to be captain of the ship, and what does he do? Well, the same thing you and I have done. That in our self-autonomy, we run our ship right into a rock. You can do that, or you can yield. Yield to God's authority in your life. You know, we're going to look in a couple of weeks about somebody who yields as a, as a highlights and a as a, a, a character study of what it looks like to submit to God's authority. It was a teenager. You see, God came to a little teenage girl and said, you're gonna have a baby. Oh, and this baby's gonna ruin your life. Your reputation will be ruined. Your potential marriage will be ruined. You'll watch him die, in fact. This baby will cause you shame. You'll be whispered about for the rest of your life. And what was Mary's response? Be it done according to me as you will. So I ask you this, 14 and 15-year-olds, is life about you and what you want? Or might we yield like Mary did? Have you yielded to become a servant? Now, Paul is a servant of the Lord to do what? To do what? To what? Preach 
the gospel. The answer to that is the second answer of what it means to be commissioned in ministry. It means if you're commissioned in ministry, it means you have a gospel ministry to do. You're a steward of the gospel of grace. He says this in verse 2 and in verse 7. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Paul tells the Ephesians that he is a steward of the grace of God. What is a steward? A steward is one who 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 has given someone else's property and assets, and you're supposed to deliver them to someone else or to care for them on that other person's behalf. Listen, if you if you look at the job shortage around our country, and you man, you're looking for some Christmas work. You can go to UPS right now and be like, "Hey, I'll take a job." Now, if you understand that job to be that they pack a whole lot of packages in a brown truck for you, and then you get to take that brown truck and drive it straight to your house and keep all of those packages, you're not going to have that job for very long, are you? Because the purpose of the UPS driver is they've been stewarded with your Christmas gifts to deliver them to you. That's what we are living. When God gives us grace, he doesn't give us grace for you to simply possess it and hoard it to yourself, but to give it away to give it away. You're to steward the grace that you have been given. God provides forgiveness, therefore you what? Forgive others. God provides mercy, and therefore you extend mercy towards others. God provides generously, and so you give generously to others. Do you understand this? Do you understand that's why you have been saved? It's so that you can be a part of God's gracious ministry and work in this world. Man, those who are great sinners seem to get this way better than us who are so pretty, who have learned to make life work outwardly, at least for us. There's a lady named Tammy who I heard about from a, from a church, and our, a pastor in our, our denomination. And Tammy, she was a homeless woman, and she, she had ex- ex- experienced unbelievable abuse in her life. And then as a homeless woman, eventually she came into a hospital and came into contact with this particular church because she underwent a horrendous and horrible assault on the streets. And this church began to take care of Tammy. And they helped nurse her wounds and they helped provide what she, some basic needs for her. And ultimately, though, she, she had no place to live. And as it, in the process of trying to find her a job and, and get her some provision so that she could actually begin to support herself, she went back to living out on the street. But the church kept trying to provide some of her practical needs. And so one of the things they did is they provided her vouchers to get food around the community at various food banks and the connections that they had, and that they, they kept contact with Tammy, and the various members of the church would go out to where she lived and the particular bridge where she would hang out, and they would go and minister her, but they found that even though they had given her all these vouchers for food, that she still, she was wasting away, that she wasn't gaining weight, that she seemed to still be hungry, and they were asked Tammy, he's like, Tammy, what's going on? Why are you not eating enough? We've given you all this, this, these provisions for food, and she would go, well, I've been giving my vouchers away. And they were like, wait, the vouchers were for you, for you. And she said, yes, but how can I, who have experienced the grace of God and the generosity of his church, not actually extend that to other people? Tammy got it. Tammy got it. Do you? The pattern of the Bible over and over again is what God gives you. He gives it to you in order to extend it to other people. And it's not just that having received grace for yourself is a nice thing or a good thing to share with other people. You understand you are obliged to do this. That means it's, an, it's a matter of commanding, of commandments. 
You might say, That's, that seems a little bit strong. Let's hear what Paul says about it. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, he says this, For I preach the gospel. That gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. Woe is an Old Testament word that the Old Testament prophets always used. It means, oh my, judgment is coming. <laughs> is what it means. Romans 9, verses one, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says this, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Therefore, I am eager to preach the gospel to those of you who are in Rome. He's obligated. He's called. It's a necessity. It's a matter of obedience about preaching the gospel. There is judgment coming. There is wrath and there is discipline coming for those who refuse to do this. You know the story of the lepers in 2 Kings? It teaches us the same lesson. The king of Syria had laid siege on Samaria and there was this unbelievable, because they laid siege, there was no food in the city, in their capital city. In the capital of Israel, the city was running low and months after months, and there were these four lepers who lived outside the city gates, in between the gates and the Syrian army. And eventually though, God comes to the, to, to the king of, of Israel and he says, I'm gonna drive them away. And one night, God drives away the whole army of Syria. And the first people to find that the whole army of Syria has fled in the middle of the night are the four lepers. <laughs> and they show up and they go, wow, look at all this stuff and all this food. It is our happy day. This is great for us. And then it says this in verse 8 of 2 Kings chapter 7. And when the lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into the tent and ate and drank, and they carried all silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off more things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of what? Good news. Which is what word? gospel. If we are silent and wait until the morning, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's whole household. These beggars who had found treasure now announce it to the city, the good news, and that is what you are. What does one pastor put it? We are merely beggars and blind men telling other beggars where they can find bread. Is there a lesson here for us? Yes. We cannot keep Silent, you've been stewarded with the gospel of grace. You must speak it in word and deed. Third, a commissioned minister of the gospel is a sufferer on behalf of others. A sufferer on behalf of others. This section is bookended on, in, chapter, in verse 1 and verse 13, speaking of Paul's suffering and who he suffers for. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner... On behalf of you Gentiles, verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul does ministry for his own glory? No, for the, on behalf of others. He dies to self, but he also lives for others. He, his life is for the Gentiles. Why is Paul in prison? Because he was accused of bringing an Ephesian Gentile into the temple in Jerusalem. This is what started the whole problems that would lead out throughout the rest of his life. Because he proclaimed the gospel, the Jews went ballistic. Paul was in jail because he was living on behalf of the Gentiles and longed for them to be brought in as co-heirs with Christ. Do we have this perspective about ministry that they were there to serve other people? It was a great story about Truett Cathy, about one, man, one day a man, um, Truett Cathy was like the founder of Chick-fil-A, 
all right? And, and you know, the holy grail of Christian businesses. And, and one day he, was, he had an intern who was applying for a job at headquarters. And he was in, in one day, this intern, it was being shown around the company. And, and lo and behold, True Cathy came walking down the hall after coming out of a meeting. And he, they, they introduced this new intern to True Cathy. And True Cathy says this to the young man, I am looking forward to working for you, for you. His perspective as the leader of one of, the, one of the most successful businesses in our country was, I'm here to work and serve interns. What would it look like if we serve others? What would it look like for you? Others, human beings. It might look like giving up your summer to host young boys and girls from underprivileged neighborhoods, to experience the goodness and beauty, so they might experience the goodness and beauty of God's creations without guns and violence and to share with them the good name of Jesus. You can do that through God's farm. It might look like volunteering at pregnancy resources that definitely, desperately need client advocates, young mothers, mothers who will walk with young mothers who are alone in their crisis pregnancy. It might like, look like adding one too many children to your households, and you'll know it. It will feel like one too many children. <laughs> it might look like viewing your Saturday, your Sunday afternoons as not for yourself, but getting Getting the, not getting to take that afternoon, long afternoon nap, but instead hosting college students at your house for lunch. It might look like not adding another $300 to your savings account, but instead sending money to missionaries in the 1040 window. What does it look like for you? What has God called you? Whom has he called you to serve? Paul was called to serve to the Gentiles. Who has God called you to serve? And, and there is an incredibly important, this will change. If you have this perspective of, I am here to do ministry, to serve other people, not to get notches in my belt or uh, jewels in my crowns in heaven, or to feel like I've just done my duty. No, the perspective is that this is my calling, to serve other people. Well, actually, it's not just a perspective change, it will change the exact ways we do ministry down to the details of it. Let me tell you a story I read about uh, from a guy named Dave, Dave Ferguson. He was a pastor a couple years ago that I read this book, and he actually references a dissertation by a guy named Mark Lowry Russell, who wrote a dissertation for Asbury Seminary. And in the dissertation, he was studying the use of business as a part of missions. Companies that are going in overseas and, and, and doing work and in, in planting businesses there in order to help establish the church and share the gospel. And he studied 12 companies that all moved there to do, to do work. And they, he, what he noticed in his study is that there was two different mentalities these, these businesses had. He said that one particular study, in one particular group of companies, they all moved there and they had what he described as the blessing orientation. And other companies had what he called the converting orientation. The blessing orientation went to be a company that would bless the nation physically and financially and ultimately spiritually. Those of the converting, converting orientation said, we're going to make converts to Jesus. That's all we're going to try to do. Now, along with these orientations came two postures. Those with a blessing orientation came with an overt posture, an overt posture of evangelism. They were not ashamed of the gospel. They were happy to extend it to other people. They said, we will not hide that we are Christians. We are not going to hide that we're telling people about Jesus. We're going to be quite open and blatant about it, even as we start this business. But those with a converting mentality went with a convert posture. They saw, they saw that actually the culture around them as a threat. They always thought other people would be 
angry with them for trying to convert them. The blessers became open and shared with expectation and frequency, but those who went as converters were insecure in their identity. They assumed a hostility in their context to the gospel, and therefore they assumed a negative response to the gospel even before they began to share it. And therefore, because they assumed hostility and they assumed negativity and they assumed that these people were below them, they shared the gospel very infrequently. Whereas the blessers came overtly, they allowed for extensive exposure and they were patient with people's questions. They didn't simply give up very quickly after sharing because they were not simply after a quick notch, a conversion, but they wanted to bless these people and see transformation in their whole life. And they knew that was going to take time and patience. Where the converters evaluated effectiveness by how many conversions they got, they wanted to see immediate fruit, whereas the blessers were happy to be there for the long term. And here's what the study showed is that the ratio of effectiveness, those he called the blessers, Saved, saw conversions at a rate of 48 to 1 compared to the converters. The blessers experienced significant fruit, confident in their missionary identity, willing to engage in long-term conversations, patient, willing to submit themselves to other people and their questions with long exposure, not assuming hostility and not assuming negative responses, and not wanting to simply getting notches on their belts. They took a, a, a posture of we're small, we're here to bless. We're here to care for you. How do you need to be blessed? What are the questions you have about Christianity? Listen, you will begin to take a role of a servant to bless when we see the infinite worth of image bearers and don't simply see them as notches on our belt that we can share in a small group or in a mission support letter. When we see them as infinite worth, of infinite worth in God's sight as image bearers. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13. It's an interesting phrase. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, this is odd. It seems like Paul would be saying, listen, I'm suffering. Don't you see my glory? I'm the one who's suffering, doing the noble thing on your behalf. It should be my glory that he's talking about. No, he's saying, no, my suffering results in your glory. What is he saying? Now, this only makes sense if we think of it this way. And we're going to think of it in terms of the negative first in order to bring about the positive, what he's saying here. You remember the name Boko Haram? It's a terrorist group in northern Nigeria. They made world news a couple years ago because they kidnapped 200 schoolgirls. Well, that made world news, but they were actually doing it long before that large kidnapping, and they've been doing it ever since. And what they would do is they'd go into the Christian area of northern Nigeria and they would steal young women from their homes. And, 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 but what they had two things that they always do because as, as, um, in order to keep Sharia law, they had to actually pay a wedding dowry because the, the whole point of kidnapping these young girls was to them marry them off to their various soldiers. And so in order to keep uh, Sharia law, they would leave a bridal price. That amounted to $8, and then they would throw out a few cola nuts as well. $8 as the bridal price. Now, this, this had two purposes. It met the bare standards of Sharia religious law. And second, it communicated to the family that their daughter was not worth much. Right? It's, it's emotional terrorism on top of the actual physical as well. He's saying, you're not worth much. Your family is not worth much. Now, how does God think of us? See, that's the opposite of how God thinks of us. Paul is saying the opposite. Paul says that God has bought me, Paul, with a price. 
I am a treasure to God. And as God's treasure, he will take me and he will pour me out, even in suffering, that I might win you. Your glory, your beauty, your image bearing before God. Paul is saying, be encouraged by my suffering on your behalf. Because it reflects if God is willing to pour treasure out to win me, and then he pours me as his treasure to win you, you must be a treasure to God. God purchases a treasure and will spend that treasure on you. And so when you go to serve other people, is that how you view them? As treasures of God? Do you value others? And I will say this. I don't think I've ever used this line, but it's a true one. If you're used to hearing about mission sermons, it's this. That there are people, there are image bearers in this world who are dying without Christ. And do we love image bearers? Do we love image bearers? Do we treasure them as Christ treasures them? And are we willing not simply to serve them, but are we willing to actually suffer for them? Because that's what Paul is willing to do. If you're gonna, if you're gonna be a steward of the ministry that God has given you, if you're gonna be a commissioned minister, you have to be willing not simply to serve other people, but it means it's gonna involve suffering. Dieter Bonhoeffer, the martyr for Christ, because of his attempts to take out Hitler, said this, the cross is not the terrible end of the an otherwise God-fearing and simply happy life, but it meets us at the beginning. The cross meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ, such that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I reference Paul's commissioning in Acts chapter 9. God tells Ananias, hey, go tell Paul that he has a task. His task, his commissioning is to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Oh, but you also get to say this to him. Verse 15, Acts chapter 9. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It was embedded in his commissioning that he will suffer. This sacrifice and suffering are not to be separated from ministry. Suffering is part of the ministry. He promises this over and over again in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, for it's been granted you that for the sake of Christ, he's speaking to a church, a whole church, that you should not only believe in him, but also what? Suffer for his sake. Suffer. Therefore, whatever ministry of service, whatever commissioning, do not be surprised. And in fact, perhaps even understand that part of your ministry is to suffer. There's a name, Lo Fook. He was a Chinese businessman in the 1800s, and he was watching as his countrymen were being taken to all sorts of places all over the world to do essentially slave labor. Happened here in the United States with our, how we built the railroads. It was also happening in particular in South America, in Guyana. As a believer, he recognized that not only that slavery was wrong, but he had been given a position as a businessman that if he wanted to reach those slaves for Christ Jesus, his suffering countrymen around the world, that he was actually going to have to join them in order to have a witness to them. And so this successful businessman who was able to travel travel the world and who was wealthy sold himself into slavery. I gave his life to Christ so that he might get on a slave boat going to Guyana and witness to the other slaves there and then began to work in the mines of Guyana right alongside the slaves. And as he would work throughout the day, right alongside them, he would share the gospel. And after not too very long of a period of time, the mines took his life. But before the mines took his life, 
he won 200 souls for Christ. And there was formed there in Guyana a Chinese church that within the next couple years not only had begun to flourish so much so that the church there was growing, but they began to send missionaries from Guyana, Chinese missionaries from Guyana back to China to do missions work. Because he was willing to suffer. Suffering was at the heart of his calling. And so Paul here is giving us an account of what has happened because he is a servant of his life, uh, in his life. He is willing to suffer in order to do ministry. Listen to this. See if this sounds like your life. Five times, he says, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger, in thirst, often without food, and cold, and exposure. And apart from other things, this is my favorite one, there is merely the daily pressure in, of, in, on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And Paul says this, that we get to join in this work of suffering, this ministry of suffering. Because he says this, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. This is not just Paul's calling. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonment, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Verse eight, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true. Did you hear some of those more mundane sufferings that Paul endured? We hear, right, the ones that get on the marquee are like, hey, five beatings, shipwrecks, but do you hear all, like, sleepless nights? I've had those. Labor, hard work, hunger, journeys in order to serve and suffer for others. Did you also see how many of the suffering to the very hand of those he's trying to serve? This is quite interesting. Danger from false brothers, the very people he's trying to minister to. Imposters, slanders, and people who try to dishonor you. One of the great lies we believe about ministering to other people is that they will thank us for it. That's a good reminder for you parents, Right? Right? I am so sick and tired of these kids not thanking me for my sacrificial parenting. Right? Because we believe we shouldn't have to suffer in order to serve, right? But it's, it's seeing the heart there. You know, some of the most painful aspects of ministry, whether it be evangelistically to the world or in the church, is betrayal and slander. You know, I had this happen this week. I, I, I got really upset about someone who I felt had slandered me. And, I, and they did, actually. Someone I had ministered to for a long time. And for some reason, this still comes as a surprise to me. And my anger, my anger at this person and about this person reveals not just a naivety about the heart of ministry, but it actually shows that my heart is not willing to suffer, to serve. That I want to serve, but as long as I get a pat on the back and a good old boy at the end of it all. But the call to ministry is a willingness to suffer for the very sake of those to whom you're trying to win for Christ. There was a Messiah warrior named Joseph a number of years ago who came to Christ and he was so overjoyed by the message. You know, the Messiah tribe, they're a warring tribe, well known in Africa for their violence. It was a, he, and he comes to know Jesus, though. He encounters an evangelist on the road in Africa one day and he comes to know the Lord and he decides after a period of time that he wants to go tell his friends in the Messiah tribe about Jesus. And so he goes back to his village. 
And he goes in there the first time and he, he goes to his local tribe and he goes door to door beginning, he, and begins to tell them about Jesus and about this wonderful Savior who's Lord of his life and who's died for his sins. And he was bewildered to find out that they did not, not only did they not accept Jesus and didn't meet Jesus with the same excitement he did, but they got really hacked off. So much so that as he went door to door, more and more people began to come out of their, their huts and begin to gather around and they grew angrier and angrier until eventually some of the men of the tribe went and grabbed him and threw him to the ground and held him while the women of the tribe then took barbed wire whips and be, began to beat his back over and over and over again to the point where they thought he must, he would die from his wounds and then they took him and they threw him out in the desert outside the village. Well, he eventually comes to just enough to, to crawl his way to a watering hole, and over the course of a couple of days, in and out of consciousness, he drinks from the watering hole. After a few days, he finally gets enough strength to get himself back up, and he determines, he decides, he, he thinks, maybe I made a mistake, because when I first heard the gospel, it was so lovely and so beautiful, he decides, maybe I'm in, I didn't share it correctly. And so he's like, maybe they just misunderstood. And so he goes back into the village and he goes into the middle of the village and he begins to proclaim the goodness of Jesus all over again. And wouldn't, wouldn't you know, they grabbed him again, they held him down and they took the barbed wire whips and they beat him again over and over and over again. And then they threw him outside the village. Now, the fact that he could live through one of these beatings was remarkable. The second, the fact that he would live through it seemed to be nearly miraculous. But a few days later, he comes to and eventually crawls back up and with a bleeding, broken back, determines one more time, I'm going to go back in and give it one final shot. He returned to the small village, and this time they can see him coming, stumbling into the village. And before he had opportunity to open his mouth, they grabbed him this time and commenced beating him a third time. And as they were beating him, he, began, he was pray, pray, speaking to them the, the, about the goodness of Jesus and about how they needed to ask Jesus for forgiveness from their sins and that he was, should be Lord of their life. And the last thing he remembers before he passes out from the pain is that the women beating him, even as they were still beating him, they began to weep. And a few days later, he comes to, this time not out in the desert, but in his own bed. And the very ones who had beaten him were now nursing him back to health because revival had fallen. And those same women who had been beating him began to weep and repent of their very be the very beatings that they were giving him. And the whole tribe came asking him forgiveness. And over the course of a number of months, the tribe came to know Christ Jesus. Now, here's, let me ask you this. What might lead you, what might lead us as a church to live into this commissioning, this life of purpose, and to store the message of God, to serve God, so much so that you would be willing to suffer at the hands of others? What might lead you to do that? Well, you probably need a testimony like Paul's. I don't mean the, the craziness with the shining lights and the blindness and all that kind of stuff. But what you need is what every, every person needs, which is an astonishment at God's grace. What does Paul say here? You cannot be a steward of grace unless you have received it yourself. He says in verse seven, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. The recurring thing of this passage is that everything that Paul has and has become and has achieved is not his own doing. It is of the grace of God. And we're talking about Saul of Tarsus, the one who foamed at the mouth, a persecutor of the church. And Paul is deeply conscious 
of his own unworthiness. And he's awed by the fact that he would be called into ministry such that he says this in verse eight. To me, he says, though I am the least of the saints, this grace was given. What's the grace? Yes, the gospel of grace, but the grace of being able to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ Jesus. How do you become somebody who's willing to suffer on behalf of other people? You realize that Christ has suffered on your behalf in order to extend you grace. Paul says, I am the least. And actually in the Greek, it means I am the least of the leastest. He makes up a word, the leastest. I'm the leaster than you. I love the play on words here. As he is the man, Christian who is the least of the least and he gets to preach the best of the best the unsearchable riches of Christ. He hated Jesus. He blasphemed God. He killed Jesus' brothers and sisters. And he was stunned by the grace of God that would call him to Christ himself and then call him to go serve the church. Are you stunned by grace? When was the last time you were stunned by it? What in the world are you doing in the family of God? You. What am I doing in the family of God? What are you in the world are you doing as a recipient of God's love? You don't belong here. And yet he gives it to us anyways. And so how do you grow into humility such that you're willing to suffer at the hands of those that you serve? You come to know the unsearchable riches of God's grace. You grow in humble service and humble suffering and humble stewarding of the gospel of grace because you have tasted of the grace yourself. And the deeper you have drank from God's grace, the more you will extend it to others. And this happens over the course of your life. You know, three times Paul says something like this. Earlier on in his life, he said this, I am the least of the apostles. Then here in Ephesians, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. And in his last book, last letter, he writes to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he says, I am the chief of sinners. What happens to the apostle Paul over the course of his life? His sin is seen as greater, but the grace of God is even greater as well. This is the progression of growth, that you would be somebody who gets the cross more and more deeply, and as that happens, as you drink more deeply of the grace of Jesus, you become somebody who it becomes the greatest honor of your life to extend grace to others and tell of the grace of God to other people. Hudson Tater, after a life of enormous sacrifice that included the loss of his wife and two children in his service in China, simply said this, I never, I never made a sacrifice. Do you view gospel ministry and your commissioning like that? That whatever sacrifices he may call me, these things are an honor and a privilege to participate on. Man, if we're going to have that, we need God's grace to become real to us, don't we? Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, renew us afresh, remind us anew of what Jesus has done for us. Service and suffering, (laughs) these things don't come naturally to us because we want to serve ourselves and we want gold stars, not beatings on our back. And so, Lord, if we're going to extend our life like this, if we're going to be people who are passionate about extending the grace of God, we need to taste of it. So would your spirit come and allow us to taste of your goodness again? Would you meet us on our road? Would you convince us of our sinfulness? But then may your grace appear even greater than all our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.